wants everybody to be free. That's what I believe. And that's one part of my foreign policy. Pray for our military men and women who are striving to do what is right also for this country, that our leaders, our national leaders, are sending them out on a task that is from God. A basic belief common to all faiths in serving and loving God through serving and loving your fellow human beings. As witnessed by the life and teaching of Jesus, one of love, selflessness and sacrifice, the meaning of the Torah. Oh yes, my friends. Oh yes. From Bush to Palin to Blair to many, many other so-called leaders besides, they are absolutely always full of platitudes about how holy and pious and God-loving they all are. But, uh, of course, once you begin to scratch that surface, as I'm sure many of you out there know, you start to see a really, really different reality underneath about what gods they are really serving. So tonight, my friends, on Corbett Report Radio, we're going to be getting into the elite religion. And, of course, I use that word elite advisedly. Of course, there is nothing elite about these people who have found themselves in the positions of power. But they do have their own religious beliefs, and it's nothing to do with the the ones that they express in public. And it's everything to do with subjugating the rest of the human race and building up what they think is going to be, uh, well, they're going to become gods in and of themselves. That's really where their religion lies and their religious beliefs. So we're going to start breaking some of that down tonight on the uh, the program. So once again, thank you for joining us tonight here on Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I wanted to get into the uh, concept of the elite religious practices because of an interesting story that popped up last month that I didn't have time to cover when I first saw it. But uh, but now that we have a moment in the, in the schedule, why don't we take a look at this really interesting and somewhat bizarre story that came out on the Mail Online, the DailyMail.co.uk last month, under the headline, How Mainstream Media Kept Obama's Alice in Wonderland-Themed Party a Secret in Depths of Recession in 2009. Now, of course, I will provide the link to this article so you can go read it for yourself on CorbettReport.com slash radio after tonight's program airs. But uh, suffice it to say, this this article tends to portray this uh, Alice in Wonderland Halloween party that uh, the Obamas threw in the White House as a scandal because it was so extravagant and over-the-top during a time of deep recession. The idea being, of course, that uh, the the, uh, the power elite, the political elite, or so-called uh, political elite, the, the puppets-in-chief, really shouldn't be giving such lavish and extraordinary parties while everyone else is suffering so hard economically. And that's basically the uh, the take on, on the story from, from that point of view. But some of the details about this Halloween party that they threw in the White House on, on, in October 2009 are so bizarre that uh, that uh, they really defy description, and they're they're really only releasing some of the juicy details of this story way down several paragraphs into the story, where most people probably won't read them. But this uh, this party, of course, took place on Halloween in 2009, and uh, actually Johnny Depp and Tim Burton were recruited by the White House to put together this party. Uh, no word on how much they were paid for their services in putting this party together, but uh, it was some Alice in Wonderland themed party, I guess, to coincide with the release of that movie around that time. 
and uh, some of the uh, the attendees were treated to such uh, gifts as uh, the original Chewbacca costume from Star Wars director George Lucas, who personally provided the costume for the party, and and all of these uh, various things that they were doing. Among some of the other more bizarre things that they were giving out included bone-shaped meringue cookies and fruit punch served in blood vials, which I think at least begins to broach the subject of something else going on behind the surface. Of course, there's much, much more to it. So tonight on Corporate Report Radio, we'll be getting into the hidden religious practices of the so-called elite. So stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to the program, friends. Here we are on Corbett Report Radio this Tuesday evening or Wednesday afternoon for me here in Japan, and we're going through the elite so-called religion and what uh, what really motivates the people who are really in positions of power, and as well as their political puppets who, of course, have to, I guess, be pious towards the elite so-called religion in order to get ahead uh, in the game. Of course, it's all about enslaving and subjecting us, uh, the average people, to to the whims of this power elite who believe, truly believe themselves to be genetically superior to you and I. So we're going to start going through some of the bizarre practices of some of these people who have attained these, at least these puppet positions of power in uh, in so-called authority. So we'll start going through some of that tonight. But, of course, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation and add your own two cents to the mix, the lines are wide open at 1-800-313-9443. Again, that's 1-800-313-9443, and you can get in with your own thoughts on tonight's subject. But I wanted to start by digging up an old article that I wrote, uh, well, actually going on five years ago now, four and a half, anyway, uh, back in December of 2007. I wrote an article about Tony Blair converting to Catholicism, and that was about uh, the former British Prime Minister, obviously, who he converted to Catholicism shortly after leaving office, which not a lot of people picked up on, but I thought was particularly significant because his name was being thrown around at the time as a possible president of the EU, that unelected uh, bureaucratic authority that claims to have jurisdiction over the mass of people living in in Europe. And obviously, to get ahead in the EU, you have to be Catholic, because an Anglican wouldn't do. You have to be, uh, well, subjected to the Pope, as has been the case in Europe for hundreds, uh, well, thousands of years, really. So um, so I thought that was an interesting story that, that got scant coverage at the time, and I wrote this article about it, which had some interesting uh, excerpts about Tony Blair's private spiritual practices. And it reads in part, quote, uh, Tony Blair converted to Catholicism last Friday during Mass at Archbishop's House, Westminster. Reaction at Blair's conversion, conversion has ranged from bemused to indignant. The latter tone is struck by Leslie Rowe, a Green Party parliamentary candidate who penned a letter to the Yorkshire Post pointing out that the Roman Catholic Church is hypocritical for allowing an unindicted war criminal into its ranks. William Rees Mogg cogitates on the political significance of the conversion in an officially Protestant state in his Times Online article on the subject. Little mention is being made, however, of Mr. Blair's recent admission that he avoided revealing his deep religiosity for fears of being labeled a nutter. Although some may believe him to be referring to a professed British aversion to public avowals of faith, perhaps he is referring to the bizarre occult rituals which he performed during his reign as Prime Minister of Britain. Peter Foster's claim that Mr. Blair had the Blair's own style guru 
channel of force called The Light for advice about thorny political problems was dismissed by the media as the ramblings of a con man, despite the fact that the very same article admits he was telling the truth about the Cherie Gate scandal, referring to a scandal regarding uh, Tony Blair's wife, Cherie. Mr. Foster's assertions were later backed up by journalist Paul Scott, who discussed the bizarre relationship between the Blairs and their style guru, Carol Kaplan, as well as Cherie Blair's purported penchant for having her friend divine the right time to take key actions by dowsing hair and nail clippings. Hmm. These reports, which corroborated each other and reveal a truly bizarre side of the British First Family, were denied by Downing Street and thus cast into the memory hole by the mainstream press. Less easily dismissible are reports from both The Guardian and The Edmonton Journal that the Blairs took part in an Aztec rebirthing ceremony involving chants and prayers designed to balance their energy flow during a trip to Mexico. The Journal article described the ceremony this way. Dressed only in bathing suits, Britain's first couple stood outside a brick pyramid on the hotel's grounds and bowed toward each point of the compass while chanting to each of the four winds. The spiritual leader of the ceremony encouraged them to feel at one with Mother Earth, the Times reported, and to experience inner feelings and visions. The Blairs then moved around the outside of the pyramid, one facade at a time, praying first to the Mayan symbols of the sun and baby lizards, signifying spring and childhood. They then prayed to another wall, on which a bird was painted, representing adolescence, summer, and freedom. On a third was a crab for maturity and autumn, and finally a serpent for winter and transformation. Moving inside, Tony and Cherie immersed themselves in the herb-infused mist of a Mayan steam bath to sweat the physical and spiritual impurities from their bodies and to balance their energy flow. Mayan holy songs were incanted as they meditated and attempted to conjure up visions of animals in the steamy air. The celebrant explained the meaning of each of their hallucinations. Before emerging from the pyramid, the Blairs were instructed to give voices to their hopes and fears. They said a prayer for world peace, and then undergo a rebirth. This involved smearing one another with papaya and watermelon, then with mud from the Mayan jungle outside, the Times explained. Finally, while exiting the womb door of the pyramid, the Blairs were told to scream out loud to signify the pain of birth. They then walked hand in hand to the beach for a dip in the Caribbean. Perhaps this is what Mr. Blair was referring to when he said he would be called a nutter. While such practices by an acting prime minister seem utterly preposterous at first glance, the reports have come from a variety of mainstream sources. Perhaps the spirituality of the ruling elite, who just happened to get elected directly after attending the highly secretive Bilderberg Conference, differs markedly from that of the mainstream Christian religion they claim to be a part of. And the uh, article ends with a link to, of course, the seminal documentary about Bohemian Grove by Alex Jones. So, uh, again, for anyone who hasn't seen the bizarre rituals that take place in the Grove, uh, attended by such sterling politicians as the Bushes, both George Sr. and Jr., well, I would suggest you do go and watch some of that footage, because it really does have to be seen to be believed. Uh, certainly, when I started my 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 journey down the rabbit hole, so to speak, with 9-11 Truth and finding out about the monetary system and other such, well, somewhat more prosaic subjects, I was not expecting at all to encounter this type of 
bizarre occultic uh, practices being such an obsession with so many of the so-called political leaders, and yet it certainly is there. And it's something that I, I've explored a few times on my podcast at CorbettReport.com, including in such episodes as episode 93 of that podcast released back in 2009, Digging Up Skull and Bones, where I went through the history of that august institution, the Skull and Bones uh, Secret Society on the campus of Yale, which, of course, George Bush and Junior and Senior, again, have both been a part of. But uh, but perhaps more interestingly, uh, along the lines of that uh, that very uh, scandal engulfing Tony Blair at the time regarding his uh, style guru who happened to douse his hair toenail clippings or whatever it was to try to read read his future. Well, bizarrely enough, the exact same scandal happened with the prime minister of a completely different country, of Canada. The current Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, was engulfed in such a scandal just a few years ago, uh, back in 2007. This came out in April of 2007 from CTV News. Critics, Harper should pay for own fashion advice. And that headline, of course, uh, tends to obscure what this is really about, but let's let's read into it a little to find out what, what's really going on here. It says, quote, Pierre Trudeau wore flowers in his lapel, and Sir Mackenzie Bowell Bowl favored a thick white beard. But Stephen Harper is the first prime minister to have a personal stylist paid for by taxpayers. Michelle Muntian, a former stylist for CTV News, fusses over Harper's hair. And if you've ever seen Stephen Harper, you would know that, uh, that she should probably not be paid anything for that. But anyway, who am I to talk? Uh, fusses over Harper's hair, selects his clothes, and even accompanies him on official trips, most recently to France in the Vimy Ridge Memorial Ceremony. She's also been known to give her clients spiritual advice, leaving some critics wondering if Harper is getting more than fashion advice. What is wrong is the use of public dollars to pay for a stylist or a psychic, said New Democrat MB Judy Wasilicia Lace. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Former Prime Minister Mackenzie King famously communicated with his dead relatives and dog and believed his dreams were a good way to contact the spirit world. And lo and behold, yet again, we see, as you can see from that and the rest of that article, yet another politician with yet another bizarre spiritual practice. And again, as I say, this is not just one or two isolated bizarre incidents. It's actually a pattern that has taken place time and time again through decade after decade and politician after politician. Uh, that report mentioning Mackenzie King, a uh, former Canadian prime minister. Uh, there is uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, famously had an astrologer who told him even what time, the precise minute and, and second at which to start his speeches and and other such things to to offer the most uh, opportune moment. Again, that was written up in Time magazine. So, again, this isn't coming from kooky conspiracy sources. Um, we have, uh, for example, uh, Barack Obama. Oh, yes, that uh, that uh, that wonderful Christian who um, who has the Reverend Wright as his uh, spiritual mentor. Well, uh, this one might ex- escape most people's memories, but it comes from EconomicTimes.com. Uh, Obama seeks Hanuman's blessing for White House race. And this uh, article reads, It's unusual, but it's a fact. Barack Obama, the presumptive Democratic Party's presidential nominee, is seeking the blessings of blessings of Hanuman in his battle for the White House. The 46-year-old senator from Illinois, who defeated his rival Hillary Clinton in, epi- in an epic 17-month-long electoral battle for Democratic Party nomination, carries a tiny monkey god, apparently representing Hanuman with him for good luck. 
A recent photo posted on Time's White House Photo of the Day collection shows the first-ever black American nominee of a major U.S. party for the presidential elections carries with him a bracelet belonging to an American soldier deployed in Iraq, a gambler's lucky chit, a tiny monkey god, and tiny Madonna and child. That tiny monkey god, of course, appears to be a statue of the Hindu monkey god Hanuman, says the posting, but editors and the photographer has not identified it as such. And, uh, yes, there again, some more interesting tidbits of some of the little lucky things that, that some of these politicians keep with them for, for their uh, spiritual guidance. And, again, if people look more into the Tony Blair story, they'll find that he kept a, a small little bag in his uh, breast pocket that he never went out with without, which he believed brought him good luck and helped him to channel the light that we talked about earlier. So, again, just a taste of some of these politicians and what they really get up to when the spotlight is not directly on them. But at any rate, we will be back with more about these occult practices right after these messages. All right, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're going over the secret occult practices of the so-called elite, the so-called leaders and authorities who would presume to rule over the population. And what really makes their, their rule possible is the fact that they believe themselves to be, well, becoming gods, really, when you look at it. And once again, I plugged it on last night's show. I'll plug it again tonight because I think it's very apropos. Uh, Aaron Franz of theageoftransitions.com has written a very important book, uh, Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood, about the scientific implications of such things as transhumanism and other modern forms of alchemy, trying to uh, go after that golden holy grail of uh, infinite life, the, the pool of infinite life, and to, to become young again, and to, to live forever, and to become gods, and to, to bend matter to our will. So, again, I think that's a very important part of the agenda behind what is going on in this world. So, I'm once again attempting to shine some light on some of the more bizarre practices of these people. And we've had a listener uh, call in to suggest that people take a look at Ezekiel 11, uh, verses 9 and 10, talking about God's judgment on Jerusalem. So if you have your Bible lying around, you might want to break that out and refresh yourself with that. But I would like to turn to, uh, well, uh, part of a very interesting article from 1977, actually, from Esquire magazine. This is an article about Skull and Bones, written by Ron Rosenbaum. And for many years, I think this was pretty much one of the key sources on Skull and Bones and what happens behind those closed doors. It has since been superseded by a lot of uh, very, very excellent works that I would recommend, including, of course, Anthony Sutton's work on this subject, and uh, such things as Fleshing Out Skull and Bones by the uh, the proprietor, the, the founder, the, the owner of, uh, of, of Trine Day Publishing, uh, Chris Milligan. Um, but I would very much recommend also this this article, which is a bit outdated and it doesn't go into all of the de- details that we know about Skull and Bones right now, but still does provide a pretty good foundation of what Skull and Bones was about. And of course, Skull and Bones being an absolute key organization at Yale, which has been responsible famously, of course, for George Bush Sr. and Jr. and uh, even their granddaddy uh, Prescott, and uh, also for such people as uh, uh, Kerry, uh, Senator Kerry, who was... Bush's, uh, well, the ringer in 2004, and of course took the fall. 
Um, and so, again, a very important elite institution with its own bizarre occult practices, and some indication of that comes from this Esquire article by Ron Rosenbaum from September 1977, and that article starts by saying, quote, Take a look at the hulking sepulchre over there. Small wonder they call it a tomb. It's the citadel of skull and bones, the most powerful of all secret societies in the strange Yale secret society system. For nearly a century and a half, Skull and Bones has been the most influential secret society in the nation, and now it is one of the last. In an age in which it seems that all that could possibly be concealed about anything and anybody has been revealed, those blank tombstone walls could be holding the last secrets left in America. You could ask Avril Harriman whether there's really a sarcophagus in the basement, and whether he and young Henry Stimson and young Henry Luce, Time Magazine, lay down naked in the coffin and spilled the secrets of their adolescent sex life to 14 fellow bonesmen. You could ask Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart if there came a time in the year 1937 when he dressed up in his skeleton suit and howled wildly at an initiative, uh, sorry, at an, an, sorry, I can't read this, at an initiate in a red velvet room inside the tomb. You could ask McGeorge Bundy if he wrestled naked in a mud pie as part of his initiation, and how it compared with the later quagmire into which he so eagerly plunged. You could ask Bill Bundy or William F. Buckley, both of whom went into the CIA after leaving Bones, or George Bush, who ran the CIA and was president, whether their Skull and Bones experience was useful training for the clandestine trade. Spook, the Yale slang for spy. You could ask J. Richardson Dilworth, the bonesman who now manages the Rockefeller fortune, just how wealthy the Bones Society is, and whether it's true that each new initiate gets a no-strings gift of $15,000 cash and guaranteed financial security for life. You could ask, well, but I think you get the idea. The lending lights of the, the leading lights, I think that should be, of the Eastern establishment in old-line investment banks, Brown Brothers Harriman pays, pays Bones' tax bill, in a blue-blood law firm, firm Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, for one, and particularly in the highest councils of American foreign policy establishment, the people who have shaped America's national character since it ceased being an undergraduate power, had their undergraduate character shaped in that crypt over there. Bonesman Henry Stimson, Secretary of War under FDR, a man at the heart of the um, American ruling class, called his experience in the tomb the most profound one in his entire education. But none of them will tell you a thing about it. They've sworn an oath never to reveal what goes on inside, and they're legendary for the lengths to which they'll go to avoid prying interrogation. The mere mention of the words skull and bones in the presence of a true blue bonesman, such as Blake Blackford Oaks, the fictional hero of Bill Buxley's spy thriller Saving the Queen, will cause him to dutifully leave the room as tradition prescribed. We'll leave that that uh, article there, but it goes on in much, much longer detail. So again, I'll put the link in so you can go and explore that. And as I say, there are a number of sources that have come out in recent years that help to flesh out Skull and Bones in much more detail, including uh, uh, footage that has even aired on national TV of uh, that was captured in the Yale uh, grounds uh, on campus of one of the uh, the rituals that was going on in the the crypt. And uh, I guess they were outside for that part of it, screaming at a skull and doing all sorts of bizarre, bizarre rituals. So again, there's a lot more information out there. I'm just pointing out some of these sources. And with that, we'll take a short break, but we'll be right back with more after this. And of course, the lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking about the the so-called elites, uh, so-called religion, and their bizarre occultic practices. And we've gone through some of the things that such elite and illustrious leaders like the Bushes and Obama and Harper and Blair and Palin and so many others get into. But uh, but tonight, uh, let's let's expand the discussion a little bit because I think we've often heard the the old uh, the old saying that that religion is really a perfect tool for controlling the masses and shaping their minds and directing their practices. And uh, regardless of your religious beliefs, and I'm not here to cast dispersions on anyone's religious beliefs tonight, far from it, but I think that uh, that, that, that statement can be true, and I think there's, a, a, well, a verifiable, documentable sense in which that very process of taking control of the religious practices of a great number of people and directing them towards, well unprofitable uh, ends, shall we say, has has been demonstrably going on for decades and decades at the very least. And uh, some of that comes from an excellent article from December 2007 by Daniel Taylor of oldthinkernews.com. He wrote an article called Rockefeller and the New World Religion that gets into how the Rockefellers helped to shape the, the current, well, the, the interna- international world church and the Federal Council of Churches and Really trying to shape the uh, the one world religion, which is part of the goal of the one world government. I mean, certainly the religious and pol- political agendas go hand in hand in that regard, at least on the on the surface level. So, uh, so reading a little bit from this again, excellent article that I hope you'll go and check out on OldThinkerNews.com. Reading from a part called the Interchurch World Movement. It says, quote, in the aftermath of the bloody conflict of World War I, the League of Nations was presented as a solution to the horrendous problems that the world had witnessed. During the same time period that the League of Nations was formed, John D. Rockefeller Jr. launched the Interchurch World Movement in 1919. The Interchurch World Movement was the first attempt by Rockefeller to consolidate the churches into a corporate-like structure which would exercise control over their activities. The stability of government and the promotion of harmonious relations between people in an industrial society that the Rockefeller family was already dominating was a driving force behind the IWM. Charles E. Harvey, professor of history at California State University, wrote a history of the interchurch world movement in the 1982 paper titled John D. Rockefeller Jr. and the Interchurch World Movement of 1919-1920, a different angle on the ecumenical movement. Harvey traces the roots of the social gospel and the resulting battle between fundamental Christians and liberalism back to Rockefeller's interchurch world movement. Upon investigating the IWM, Harvey found that the historical information that most historians and researchers were using to research the IWM had been directly prepared by the lawyer of John D. Rockefeller Jr., a man named Raymond B. Fostick. The doctored information, writes Harvey, was compiled precisely to conceal the real role Rockefeller played in the organization. Harvey documents the request on the part of John D. Rockefeller Jr. to his father for millions of dollars to consolidate the churches. 
he wired his father a request for 50 to 100 million dollars to create a foundation that would use the IDM, IWM to administratively consolidate the denominations along the lines of big business. The foundation would bind ministers of participating churches in a common pension fund and unite the denomination's foreign and domestic activities. Rockefeller Jr. wrote in a letter regarding the IWM that the organization could potentially have a larger influence than the League of Nations. I do not think we can overestimate the importance of this movement. As I see it, it is capable of having a much more far-reaching influence than the League of Nations in bringing about peace, contentment, goodwill, and prosperity among the people of the earth. Harvey presents another letter written by Rockefeller in which he describes the IWM as a smart business investment. Rockefeller writes, I know of no better insurance for a businessman for the safety of his investments, the prosperity of the country, and the future stability of our government than this movement affords. The interchurch world movement lasted for a very short time, but it succeeded in planting the seeds of an ideological conflict that has lasted to the present day. By no means did the Rockefellers give up their quest. The centralized structure of churches that the IWM first developed would be put to use in the future under other organizations with Rockefeller financial support. And once again, that, are, that docu- uh, very well-documented article goes on at some length to talk about some of the, uh, the other ideas that came about along the same vein, including the Federal Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches, which exists to the present day. But the question is, well, how can this, this type of uh, religious uh, consolidation, how can they, they, they take over and, and making uh, a single organization out of these various denominations, how could, how could that be a bad thing? Maybe the Rockefellers are just genuinely interested in the promotion of religion, and it's really just out of their, their common love for humanity and their, their pious good nature, because, of course, uh, the official history of uh, John D. Uh, Sr. is that uh, he was a pious religious man who believed that competition was a sin. But, of course, no one reads that, or at least they, they never uh, tell you the real interpretation of that. Competition is a sin insofar as anyone who competes with him is a sinner and thus must be eliminated. But uh, they never give you that interpretation. They always make it sound like he was just such a pious and humble man that he just thought that everyone should get along together and live in perfect harmony. And that's why the Rockefellers devoted all their fortune to the foundation and blah, blah, blah. So we all know how that story goes. But, again, it leaves the question of where does this go and how is this affecting us to the present? day. And I think you start to see that in stories like this one, which was quite famous and got quite a bit of traction a few years ago when it first came out. It was broken by KSLA.com, KSLA 12 out of, I actually am not sure where this this particular uh, affiliate is based, but, uh, oh, sorry, Shreveport, Louisiana. And they had a story, Homeland Security enlists clergy to quell public unrest if martial law ever declared. Quote, could martial law ever become a reality in America? Some fear any nuclear, biological, or chemical attack on U.S. soil might trigger just that. KSLA News 12 has discovered that the clergy would help the government with potentially their biggest problem, us. Charlton Heston's now famous speech before the National Rifle Association at a convention back in 2000 will forever be remembered as a stirring moment for all Second Amendment advocates. At the end of his remarks, Heston held up his antique rifle and told the crowd in his Moses-like voice, Over my cold, dead hands. While Heston, then serving as the NRA president, made those remarks in response to calls for more gun control laws at the time, those words live on. Heston's declaration captured a truly American value, an overarching desire to protect our freedoms. 
But gun confiscation is exactly what happened during the state of emergency following Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, along with forced relocation. U.S. troops also arrived, something far easier to do now, thanks to last year's elimination of the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which had forbid regular U.S. Army troops from policing on American soil. And as a side note, yes, that means that even several years ago, they had already begun the destruction of the Posse Comitatus Act, which has really not existed uh, for, for several years now, but now they're just formalizing it with things like the NDAA, which was just famously signed on New Year's Eve of 2011. But continuing with this story from KSLA, if martial law were enacted here at home, like depicted in the movie The Siege, more predictive programming, easing public fears and quelling dissent would be critical. And that's exactly what the clergy response team helped accomplish in the wake of Katrina. Dr. Durrell Tuberville serves as chaplain for the Shreveport Fire Department in the Caddo Sheriff's Office. Tuberville said of the clergy team's mission, the primary thing is that we say to anybody is, let's cooperate and get this thing over with, and then we'll settle the differences once the crisis is over. Such clergy response teams would walk a tightrope during martial law between the demands of the government on the one side versus the wishes of the public on the other. In a lot of cases, these clergy would already be known in their neighborhoods in which they, they're helping to defuse that situation, assured Sandy Davis. He serves as the director of the Caddo Bossier Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. For the clergy team, one of the biggest tools that they will have in helping calm the public down or to obey the law is the Bible itself, specifically Romans 13. Dr. Tuberville elaborated, because the government's established by the Lord, you know, and that's what we believe in the Christian faith. That's what's stated in the scripture. End quote. Yes, Romans 13, which, oh, by the way, just happened to be Hitler's favorite Bible verse, but uh, but let's not bring that into the, the affair, shall we? Um, no, certainly there is definitely a very real sense in which not only could theoretically the takeover of the churches by the state that we've seen going on for decades now, uh, be used as a tool for directing people's minds and getting the flock on board with whatever they want the sheeple to go along with. But uh, that's very much a real reality that's been happening on the ground now for years, as evidenced by that story. And again, that was originally broken by Infowars several years ago, but no one believed them at the time, although they had some documents that had been leaked out to them about it. And then that story came out to further prove uh, exactly what they'd been talking about and the fact that, yes, indeed, this takeover of the churches in the name of, uh, of homeland security has been going on at the very least for a decade now, but uh, but likely has been going on for many decades, as was documented in that old Thinker News article about how the Rockefellers have had such intense interest in the religious uh, faith over over the last several decades. But uh, but as I say, that's that's one way in which they manipulate and try to steer and coerce people into into believing uh, that uh, that the churches really have uh, some say over this and that, that what the church really preaches is that everyone should just be obedient to whatever it is that the, that the government says. But that's, that's, of course, what they just want the, uh, the sheeple to go along with. That's what they just tell the, the average uh, Joe out there. But, of course, it's something completely different for the people who get closer to the top. And of course, it's an elite mystery religion for the people at the top who are, are indoctrinated, initiated into the enlightenment, the enlightened passages of, of Freemasonry and uh, begin the quest along towards the true understanding of, of real spirituality. 
And I'm sure many of you out there are familiar with this from, from many different researchers along the years and people who've, uh, who have talked about this at great length. Of course, Bill Cooper with his Mystery Babylon series and, and I featured his work, for example, his, uh, I think extremely insightful breakdown of 2001, A Space Odyssey by uh, Stanley Kubrick, who undoubtedly was an insider of some sort, and uh, there are lots of different theories about how he was involved in all of this, but I think something like Eyes Wide Shut, which uh, it presents itself as a work of fiction, but he was uh, he mysteriously ended up dead of a heart attack days after uh, submitting the what he wanted to be the final cut of Eyes Wide Shut, and the studio said, no, you have to recut it. He said, absolutely not. Uh, days later, he ended up dead. By the way, 666 days before January 1st, 2001, of course, he, he being the director of 2001, but I'm sure that's neither here nor there. But uh, certainly, I think Stanley Kubrick was very much an insider, and uh, and the breakdown of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and its meanings for the, the mystery religion, uh, I think, could not be any more important. And uh, once again, I would direct people to to check that out if they haven't already done so, because it's... Just so bizarre, so interesting, uh, some of the things that he placed in that work. But as to what the, the elite so-called really believe and what they want you to believe about uh, uh, religion, well, they are, again, two different things. So talking a little bit about what the, the, uh, the, the people at the top of this system really believe and what they're into, I think, for me, one of the things that's most important is the idea of eugenics. I think that's really where uh, this breaks down and where we start to understand what it is these people are really after, what really motivates them and what really drives them. So I wanted to read a little bit from passage on uh, of a, well, uh, an essay that I've been working on for some time now for my forthcoming book, Reportage, uh, Essays on the New World Order. And again, that is uh, coming along one of these days, I hope. And uh, you will certainly know about it when it does. But uh, I wanted to read from a, uh, an essay that I've written on eugenics called They Don't Want Your Genes in the Pool, which starts to talk about the religious aspects of what these people believe and why they believe it. And it starts off by saying, quote, The ancient Egyptians worshipped the pharaohs as progeny of the sun god Ra. The Japanese were told that their imperial family were descendants of the sun goddess Amaterasu and the sea god Ryujin. In Europe, monarchs claimed that God himself had directly granted them a divine right to rule over their subjects. In China, they called it the mandate of heaven. For as long as there have been royalty, there have been elaborate theological justifications for why monarchs deserve to rule over the people. And there has always been royalty. It's easy to see why the ruling class has tried to foster this idea of godly rule in culture after culture. After all, if the kings and queens and emperors and pharaohs were not gods, or were not chosen by the gods, why would anyone listen to them? The difference between a regal king and a tin-pot dictator disappears if the king's divinity is denied. Even today in this post-monarchical era, ancient superstitions about royal families persist. They're still referred to as blue bloods, as if the very blood that flowed through their veins is different from yours or mine. There is still an elaborate etiquette for meeting the Queen of England, and it is still strictly enforced without exception. Even Obama had to take a lesson before he could meet with Her Majesty Elizabeth II. The ritualization of this class distinction is not merely for show. The royals have always considered themselves of superior stock to the commoners, a breed apart from the poor downtrodden masses who, is, who toil and squalor beneath them. Thus, the obsession with breeding that gentry the world over have been at pains to observe throughout the centuries. Or should that be inbreeding? 
Certainly the branches of many a royal family tree tend to fold in as much as they branch out, explaining the remarkable physical similarity between members of the European royal families or the recessive disorders like hemophilia that have plagued European royalty for centuries. Modern DNA analysis has shown that the Spanish branch of the Habsburg family, the dynasty that ruled over vast swaths of Europe for over 500 years, was inbred out of existence. After generations of cousins marrying cousins and uncles marrying nieces, the genetic variation between Habsburg husbands and wives was no greater than that between brothers and sisters. The last member of the Spanish Habsburgs, Charles II, died a congenitally sick, deformed man, physically unable to have a child in order to carry on the dynasty. Nor is this a modern, uh, nor is this a modern phenomenon. Recent DNA analysis of Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun shows that he too was the sickly deformed product of a brother-sister incestuous pairing. The royal fixation with inbreeding arose, as do many such ideas, from seemingly irrefutable empirical observation. Animal breeding has been practiced for thousands of years. The ability to breed certain traits into or out of pets and livestock has been an art form ever since humans began domesticating animals to work the land. It wasn't much of a stretch for rulers and sovereigns to toy with the idea of using these techniques to purify their own stock and domesticate their own chattel, the commoners. Well, I'll end that quotation from that essay there, but it does go on to talk about the way that the scientific uh, mindset, which has come to dominate society in the way that the religious mindset dominated a thousand years ago, has given a new justification for the elite to think of themselves as elite. And it goes to, of course, the science of genetics, which the uh, geneticists of the 19th century immediately began applying towards uh, the idea that there is a is just a class of people uh, among society that are just inherently born with the right to rule over others. They are just inherently superior. And lo and behold, it turned out that the families that came up with these ideas were part of that class that deserved to rule over everyone. Wow, funny how that works, isn't it? Well, at any rate, we'll be back after these messages to wrap up tonight's conversation and to look a little bit more at the religious practices of the so-called elite. We are back here on Corporate Report Radio. Tonight we've been going over the religion of the New World Order set and their their elite uh, plans for ruling over the world uh, and perfecting humankind. And before the break there, we were going through one of my essays from the forthcoming book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order, called They Don't Want Your Genes in the Pool, talking about uh, eugenics and some of the... Uh, well, some of the, the bizarre ideas that these people have been harboring and working on for well over a century now uh, about how they are genetically superior to all of us and thus their obsession with inbreeding. But I think another ramification of that, another another thread to, to spin out from that is not just that the, these people believe themselves to be better and, and thus that their offspring deserves to live and thrive and, and rule over us while we deserve to basically be uh, well poisoned out of the system and uh, make sure that uh, that our genes don't don't survive to, to go on to the next generation. Well, another uh, aspect of that is that what these 
people truly believe, or at least I think a certain percentage of them truly believe, I don't know, perhaps people at the very top are just puppeting them. I think this mystery involved in the mystery religion is to a large extent just hooey that they've uh, created to try to lure people in with the promise that they will have some sort of special powers or whatever because of this mystery religion. But I think, again, it's just hooey that's being used to to make uh, some of the people... Um, who are who, who will go along with the system? Go along with the system, but uh, but I think some of them truly believe that they are in, engaged in the quest of perfecting humanity. And again, this goes back to um, to last night's conversation where we were talking to Mark Russell about uh, transhumanism and about the the technological singularity and the idea, the quest of a lot of these modern day proponents of eugenics transhumanism, uh, the idea that they're going to merge with the machines and that uh, these machines are going to be sentient and we're going to be able to upload our brains and live forever through them. And thus, we will, in a very real sense, in, in the sense that I think is, is important to these people, will have become gods that have created this form of life and we will be the progenitors of this, this future life which will go on to populate the stars. And uh, and it sounds, again, like science fiction craziness to people who haven't looked into this or haven't looked at the Singularity Summit website and things like that. But uh, but when you actually start to look at these people and what they truly believe underneath, you see that the, a lot of them really, truly are engaged in this quest to make sure that they their uh, their perfection of humanity, the squaring of the circle, their, you know, the ashlar, this goes back to so many of these Masonic concepts that have been elaborated by numerous researchers over the years, but but again, they, they truly believe themselves to be engaged in the perfection of that which was left unperfect, i.e. whatever creator or creation was, uh, was around in the beginning, well, we are here to improve upon it and to create uh, an even better creation and to become gods ourselves. So I think that is uh, that is really what motivates a lot of these people. And again, I think they they have taken over uh, religions of, of various sorts to a large extent and used them as as puppets in this uh, elaborate game that they're playing with the world, as if it's their little toy, as Bob Dylan famously remarked. And again, that's a lot of information to take in. I, I, so I will, I do hope you will go and take a look at the at the notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com/radio, where I'll of course include all the links to all the various articles that we were reading from tonight, and you can start to explore this more at your uh, own le- leisure. But uh, but we'll leave it there for tonight. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I am an independent uh, news and, and information purveyor at CorbettReport.com. So please go there to, to check out some of my previous work. And, of course, I do rely on your support. So any uh, subscribers to my newsletter or any purchases of DVDs do go to fund this work, and they are all greatly appreciated. So until tomorrow night, once again, thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to doing it all again with you in 23 hours. <laughs>